Well, we're continuing the series, It Is Written. And today we're going to be talking about understanding the Bible and also why we can trust the Bible. And uh, this is because I've, I've took secular worldly uh, views of why we can trust the Bible. I'm going outside of the Bible to tell you how we can trust the Bible also. So it's, this is pretty cool. And I want to start off by just talking about the Bible, how it's laid out, and what that means for us. Because I can remember when I finally decided to start reading the Bible. Uh, I mean, honestly, I quit going to church when I was a little kid. I'd been to church up to I was, I don't know, like eight maybe. And then we just quit going to church. And, but I do remember having a draw to read the Bible. And I'd try to do it a couple times through high school. And I would basically start in Genesis because that was the beginning of the book. You know, I'll just start in the beginning. And I'd read Genesis through, I'd always fade out about around Deuteronomy, you know. But I hang in there pretty good, right, for, for a high school kid. Uh, yeah, I'd fade out around Deuteronomy, and uh, yeah, that's what would happen. But then, <laughs> but then there's another time I still felt that draw. Like I just knew God. If I believed that God was real, and I believed that that was His book, then that's the only book that matters in the entire world. Why haven't I read it? You know. So that just kept coming back to me, and I was like, I have to read this book. So again, I started to read it, and luckily there was somebody at that time that was like, "Dude, you need to start in Matthew," because. That's the Gospels, and it's the New Covenant, and uh, that's really who we are today. And of course, I was like, I have no idea what you just said to me, but sure, I'll start in the book of Matthew. Sounds good. And uh, that's what I did, and I'm so glad I took his advice, because I didn't understand how the Bible was laid out, and I didn't know why. So I know this may not be a whole lot of new information for a lot of people in here, but I know it sure helped me out when I was learning how the Bible was written. And today, today is going to be full of a lot of information, but I really hope it helps us better understand the Bible and able to trust its authenticity. What's funny about this is this is honestly the hardest message I've had to put together, and it's because I'm used to making messages from the Bible, and I just look at it as the infallible Word of God, so I'm like, boom, like I don't have to double check any resources, you know, it's, it's easy, it's done. But when you're trying to like, pull these worldly resources in to prove that the Bible's real or supernatural. It's like you have to double check everything you look up and it's just time exhausting because you want to make sure what, what you're saying is true. So let me just say, I'll be more towards the end of this message where I'm talking about trusting about the Word of God. As far as I know, this is all accurate information. It is pulled from the world, but I tried my best to double check it and make sure it was all valid. So what does the word Bible even mean? Book. Nailed it. The word Bible comes from the Greek word biblos, and it just literally means book. But it's not, this book is book with a capital B, the Bible, right? And so, and it's actually a collection of books is really what the Bible is. There are a total of 66 books written by 40 different people. And it's written from different people of all walks of life. Seriously, you have kings, you have prophets, fishermen, businessmen, tax collectors, like people from every sort of walk of life has contributed to the writings of the Bible. Is that, I mean, that's pretty awesome. It actually is what makes the Bible so unique and actually testifies to how the scripture is actually inspired by God. And so we believe that all scriptures God breathed. So even though the Bible is written by individual, God is still the source of all Scripture. This is according to 2 Timothy 3, 16-17. All Scripture 
is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Awesome. Word of God's for us. Teach us how to live. Amen. So this is what is amazing to me, that even though so many different types of people uh, have written the Bible, it's still one narrative. You know what I mean? It would be impossible to get that many people to write without contradiction. But think about it. The Bible is actually written over a 1,600-year period, about 40 different people in 12 different countries, yet the Bible has the same theme without contradiction. And that's because the Bible has 40 writers, but only one author. Amen? Hmm. So there are 39 books in the Old Testament and 27 books in the New Testament for the total of 66 books. And the Old Testament is uh, basically the law, how God dealt with man before Christ. And then the New Testament is you know, coming to Jesus and the new church. So we're going to take a look at the Old Testament first. And uh, what's real interesting about the Bible is it's not written in chronological order. Something else fun for people who have no idea what they're doing when they start reading the Bible. So it's confusing for me when I first started reading it, you know, because you're trying to figure out, haven't I heard this guy's name before? Haven't I? Where's this? I thought, you know, it's just kind of confusing. But uh, the books in the Bible are actually grouped by type of book and not by when they were written. So here is the breakdown. The first five books, uh, it's actually called the Pentateuch, which just means five books. It's also known as the Torah or simply just called the law. And this is actually Genesis through Deuteronomy. So this is when the law was given, and it was written by Moses. And you know God had to divinely speak to Moses because Moses writes about the creation. And obviously Moses wasn't there when God created the world, so we know that it is divinely given to Moses. So this goes all the way through creation, through the Ten Commandments, through the 40 years in the wilderness, and then it all ends up to right before they enter the Promised Land, and Moses dies... And then, boom, that's the end of those first five books, which is called the law. And then the next 12 books are just basically a historical record in the Old Testament. So the first part is kind of some historical parts in there, too, but this is mainly known as the historical part of the Old Testament. And this is the book of Joshua through Esther. And Joshua was uh, the successor of Moses. So after Moses died, Joshua led his people into the promised land. And then this takes us all the way through the Babylonian captivity, all the way up to the end of Esther. And then technically, historically, that is the end of the Old Testament. You know, we got tons of more books left, but historically speaking, that's the end of the Old Testament. That's that's pretty cool. So the next five books are known as the poetical section, and they are Job Job, through the Song of Solomon. And Job is actually uh, known as the oldest was written before even the, the first five books of the Bible. Job was written before that even. It's like the oldest written book in the Bible. And that takes us through Song of Solomon. Now, they do have what is called a chronological Bible, which uh, Gina and I had bought one a while back, and it was to read through the Bible in a year. And it's actually really cool because it'll insert, like, like if you're reading through the stories of King David, it'll insert a psalm in the middle of that story so you know, like, what King David was going through in his time of life when he wrote that psalm. So it's a pretty cool way to read the Bible. 
Then the next 17 books are called prophetical books. And these are actually grouped down into even two subcategories called uh, the major prophets and the minor prophets. Now, that doesn't mean that the major prophets were better, bigger prophets or anything. This is just in reference to length of the book. So major prophets had longer books. Minor prophets had shorter books. That's the only difference. And so the major prophets are Isaiah through Daniel. And the next 12 are Hosea through Malachi. So all these prophets lived during that historical period that we read about, right? So if you have that chronological Bible, it'll put these right in place where they belong, and it actually will make the Bible a little more easier to read and understand like what's going on. Uh, and so at the end of this, it's the end of the Old Testament, and then you have 400 years of silence from God at this point, right? During this time, the Greeks came in and took over Persia, and then... The Romans came in and basically took over the whole known world, right? And then this is where the story in the New Testament comes in historically. So I like putting it together in history. It makes it more seem more, you know, come together better when you can actually know where it takes place in history. So the New Testament starts, and it starts with the Gospels, right? But you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these are just four accounts of Jesus. It's the same story written by four different people. And it's the account of Jesus from his birth all the way up to his resurrection. And they are known as the Gospels. And the word gospel just means good news. And it's actually even like a deeper meaning because it's more better translated as too good to be good news. It's just too, it's too good to be true, but it is. It, luckily, it is. Amen. Next is the book of Acts. And so this is the actual historical part of the New Testament now, okay? And I love reading all the miraculous things that happen in Acts. If you go read through Acts, there's some pretty amazing things that happen, miraculous things that happen. And that is exactly the same. That's who we are today. That's the same church we are today as in Acts. So you go read all that crazy stuff that happened, and it should be happening today because that's who we are. During this historical period, uh, letters were written. And these letters were called epistles, and there are 21 of them. That's the book of Romans through Jude. So if you read that chronological Bible, uh, you know what? You can read the actual the chronological Bible. It's actually on your, I know most people have that version app on your phone, and there's a reading plan that's the chronological reading plan. So you don't have to go buy a new Bible. You can just open up that app and go to that reading plan. You can read it uh, right there on your phone. Uh, but they will insert those letters in Acts, when they, were, when they were written through the book of Acts. That's pretty cool. And this is just an awesome section of the Bible because it, it's just good instruction for the new church. It teaches us how to live and what we, sh- what we should be doing today. Okay? And that just leaves one last book. And that is the book of Revelation. And uh, it's a book of prophecy for the last days and eternity. And uh, this was revealed to John, who was one of the disciples. And this was when he was exiled to the island of Patmos. He got exiled for his faith. Basically, he was solitary confinement on this island because of his faith. And uh, God gave him this revelation to write down. And that's where we get this book from. And it is uh, a book of prophecy for the last days and for eternity. So it's still being played out, really. Um, What's awesome about the Bible, though, is the entire Bible points towards Jesus, okay? John 5, 39. This is Jesus talking. He said, You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, 
and these are they which testify of me. So what he was saying is, he's like, you search these scriptures because you think that you have life in them, but those scriptures point towards me. You know, this was when his own people were rejecting him at the time. And we know he was talking about the Old Testament because the New Testament hadn't been written yet. He was still living, he was still living the Gospels. So we know that any time you read your Bible, Old Testament or New Testament, I just want you to look for Jesus because it will change the way that you, especially the way you read the Old Testament. Look for Jesus in the Old Testament. Once you've read the New, you know who Jesus is. Read the Old Testament, look for him, and it will change the way that you read that book. I promise you. This is just another good scripture I want to throw in here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Amen. So we know that the Word is God. That's why it'll last forever. So these are the 66 books of the Bible. We believe that they are God-breathed and can be trusted. But uh, the Word of God may come under attack from the world, but it's honestly without reason. And that's what I want to go over with right now. Now, I believe in the Bible because I know Jesus has done a mighty work on the inside of me. Like, He's changed me from the inside out. Like, I have no question because of my own testimony. I don't doubt the Word of God because I know He's real. I've seen stuff like Janet being healed by His Word. I mean, I know it works because I've seen it work. But, uh, but the world might look at the Bible, and they might look at some of the stories in the Bible and think, well, that's crazy. Uh, how could, that couldn't be real, and they'll just dismiss it. But even the world testifies that the book is, is uh, authentic, and I want to show that right now. Yeah, because there's a ton of evidence that points to the Bible being supernatural, doesn't stop people from questioning our faith by taking questions out of or scripture out of context or questioning its authenticity. But I want to run some facts by you right now. So we already know about how the Bible keeps a unified theme, even though it is written by 40 different writers over a period of 1,600 years. That's crazy. It would be like somebody starting a book in the year 400, someone in here contributing to that same book still today, and then that same book being written without contradiction when carrying the same theme. Like, that's, that's impossible. How would, that, how would that ever happen? Do you think it would hold accuracy? Do you think it within itself, even? Do you think it would be accurate within itself? Do you think it wouldn't have a contradiction? With 40 people contributing to it, the only way it could be unified is if there was one author. That's the only way. Now let's look at some other facts, right? The Bible is the most documented and it is the most accurate writing ever preserved. So critics, if they want to disregard the New Testament, they'd have to disregard the works of like Plato, Aristotle, Homer, all those ancient writers that we have writings from, all the writings would have to be trashed if they try to trash the New Testament. Because they'd have to, yep, the writers and their writings, because let's just take Plato, for instance, well-known name, right? We only have seven copies of his known writings, only seven. The earliest copy is from 900 AD, which is 1,200 years after the original writing. So here's the original. We don't have any copies for 1,200 years. Then we have his, the copies, all right? Well, that's pretty cool. You know, you get some work that's really old, been copied. Well, we'll take a look at the next best thing to the Bible, which is Homer's uh, Iliad, that and it has 643 copies. Wow, that's a lot of copies, right? Earliest copies date back to only 500 years after the original text. That's not bad. Surely we can trust something like that. 
And when you compare all those copies amongst each other, there's 95% accuracy within each other. That's pretty accurate. That's pretty good copies. Do you know how many copies of the New Testament they have found? 5,686. All dated within 100 years of the original writings. Some of them as close to 40 years. Some fragments are as close to 40 years from the original writing. That is way better than anything else we found in ancient writings. Okay, Because the entire New Testament was written within 70 years after Jesus' resurrection. So this is what's amazing about this too. With 5,600 copies, the accuracy is at 99.5%. And that half a percent is usually just a punctuation, crossing of a T, dotting of an I. It's something simple like that that was off the translation. But this is, this is what amazes me. So this was obviously everywhere. I mean, if there's, we found 5,600 copies, this, this was everywhere. And there were absolutely zero writings that contradict or contest the historical accuracy of the New Testament at the time. Now, there's writings that are like, these Christians are crazy. You know, they didn't, they would say, these Christians, they think this guy rose from the dead. But they would never attack the historical accuracy of the New Testament. And that is in known history. So that's, that's pretty crazy to me. Did you know that there are also more secular accounts, that's non-Christian writers, that, G, that have written that Jesus not only lived, but they confirm parts of the gospel? There are more written confirmations outside the Bible that Jesus lived than there is that Tiberius Caesar lived. But nobody would question Tiberius Caesar's existence, you know? Uh, that's, that, this stuff just really interests me. But <laughs> Here in uh, Matthew, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. His, his words here forever. And you can see that just by looking at even worldly type of history. His word is true. So here are a few facts about Jesus from secular writers, right? Jesus was from Nazareth. Jesus lived a wise and virtuous life. Jesus was crucified in Judea under Pontius Pilate during the reign of Tiberius Caesar at Passover time, being considered a Jewish king. Jesus was believed by his disciples to have died and risen from the dead three days later. Jesus' enemies acknowledged that he performed unusual feats. Jesus' disciples multiplied rapidly, spreading as far as Rome. And Jesus' disciples lived moral lives and worshipped Christ as God. So why on earth would there be more secular writings about Jesus than there are about a Roman emperor at the same time of, of, uh, in history? Could it be because he impacted the world more than Tiberius Caesar did? Hmm? Why would the disciples have multiplied so rapidly unless there was real power being exhibited by the disciples still? I mean, you can't just go around and say, like, we have the Savior, but he died, he rose again, trust me. Uh, if there was no power there, if God was not working in that individual, they would not have multiplied rapidly. It would just would have died out, and it would have just been another religion that they would have been like, oh, yeah, there was Christians, but, you know, we know how that ended. No, there's real power there. That's the only reason that they could multiply rapidly after Christ had died and was resurrected. So what I find amazing about this is not only is there uh, non-Christian testimony to the life of Jesus, right? But you also have the Old Testament prophecies 
that he fulfilled. So now that Jesus has confirmed, even by non-believers, now they have to try and rationalize all these prophecies that he fulfilled. They acknowledge he lived. They, they didn't contest that what happened in the New Testament. You have all these writings that predated that, and he fulfilled these prophecies. Now what do you do with that? Yeah, I mean, I guess you could ignore it. That's what they do, I guess. But Jesus fulfilled over 300 prophecies. Go read the 22nd Psalm and then read about the crucifixion. Like King David prophesied what was going to happen to Jesus during the crucifixion. That was before they were even crucifying people. He, yeah, he prophesied the crucifixion before they were killing people that way. Okay? There's a guy, his name is a Peter W. Stoner, and he has done extensive research on prophecies of the Bible. So if this stuff interests you, you can read a whole lot of other really cool uh, prophecies. Like he goes in and looks at the Old Testament prophecies. Some of those Old Testament prophecies are still being like fulfilled today. You can go look at parts of the world that were prophesied in the Old Testament and see what, how they're coming to pass today. It is really cool. But his website is sciencespeaks.stoner.net. And, uh, but he did a study to figure out the mathematical probability of someone, in this case Jesus, fulfilling only eight of the 300 prophecies. He took the estimates of probability from 600 different students, and they were told to be conservative with their estimates. So it would be, what are the odds of someone being born in Bethlehem? And they'd be like, they'd take the number of people at that time, and they'd be like, I don't know, one in four. Well, what are the odds of a man uh, riding on a donkey? What are the odds of a man being from Nazareth, because Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he's from Nazareth. So they took eight, only eight of those prophecies, took super conservative estimates, and then when he got those numbers back, he even made those numbers even more conservative. So he had the super conservative mathematical probability of one man fulfilling eight prophecies as one and ten to the 17th power. That is one followed by 17 zeros, right? Put that in a little more perspective. If you took 10 to the 17th power of silver dollars, you could cover the entire state of Texas two foot deep with silver dollars. Okay? That's how big this number is. And if you marked one of those silver dollars, chunked it over to the state of Texas somewhere, blindfolded a man, said, go find that, pick one coin out, and then if he picked that one, that would be it, right? Well, we all know you could unblindfold that man, and he is never going to find that coin. That is not going to happen. But uh, well, that's bumped up to 48 prophecies. It takes that number from 1 to 10 to the 17th to 1 to 10 and 157th. And these are super conservative. Like they took them down to the lowest probabilities they could to get these numbers. So you can imagine the odds of Jesus fulfilling all 300, over 300 prophecies is like astronomical. That number, there is not enough, there's literally not enough silver dollars to fill the universe by the time you hit that number. It's crazy. So not only does recorded history provide enough evidence that Jesus lived, but it statistically proves the Bible had to be written by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So we can trust that it is truth and that Jesus lives. Amen? Amen. Mm. And the last thing I'm going to talk about is science. Uh, Science even confirms the Bible. This one really aggravates me a lot because I will even see news stories that will say such and such fossil was discovered from such and such millions and millions of years ago, and now we have this thing that it evolved from. And they say it like it's fact. They have zero fact. For one, there is zero evidence. I mean, you can really look it up. There is zero evidence that proves uh, evolution. 
Yet they talk about it like it's fact, even in news stories, which just really irritates me. If they looked at it objectively, even now when it feels so bad, then they would call it still the theory, but they've dropped that theory off of it, and they talk about it like it's true, and it confuses people, and it makes me mad. But, mm. but, (laughs) but there's not one single uh, piece of evidence uh, that even slightly confirms the evolutionary theory. There are instances of fake uh, missing links, so you could call it, that they have faked, 100% known to be fake. You can look it up. It's not just some creationist saying it's fake, like they are known to be fake. The Piltdown Man, he was uh, some fossils they had found, and he anchored evolutionary theory for 40 years. Okay, 40 years. They thought this was a half-man, half-ape thing, right? Well, it took them 40 years to figure it out somehow, but what they had done, they, some guy had found a human skull and an ape jawbone, and then he dyed the ape jawbone to be the same color as that human skull because he wanted to find that missing link. And it took 40 years. But, they, but the, all these like hoaxes and false items have like built evolution, and then they believe it so much that they, don't, they just discount. Like, okay, that was a hoax, but we're still moving on. It's like you had no foundation to begin with. Like, what are you building on? They even did the same thing. They found a tooth. They thought this tooth was half man, half ape, like in between. And they built a whole other guy off him. They called him the Nebraska man. And, uh, well, they went and actually excavated where they found it because they were trying to find the rest of them. Like, well, let's see if we can find the rest of them. They did. And it turned out it was a pig. It was from a pig. It was a pig tooth. You know? And the, it's not even an extinct pig. There's like a species of it living somewhere else. It's insane. So that, they have no leg to stand on. Evolution has no leg to stand on. And if you find this kind of stuff interesting, you can check it out at creationevidence.org. Uh, this is a website for the Creation Evidence Museum in Glen Rose, Texas. And I've watched a lot of their stuff on YouTube. I've read a lot about them. And, uh, but I've also read a lot of negative articles about them. That's what I'm saying. When I study this, I try to not just focus in and not do my research. I try to look at everything. And uh, the other, there's a lot of negative articles about them just because creation is not taken seriously in mainstream uh, scientific community. It's just not. Like, in fact, I've heard that there's a lot of basically closet Christians in this community because they'll, you'll just be laughed out of town. They won't take you seriously. They'll be like, Pfft. you know, they just don't take any evidences seriously. Even though, like, this place is looking at the same evidences, they're taking the same uh, scientific approach, they just look at it from a different perspective, and they have super compelling arguments for a young earth. Mainstream sci- scientific community just, they just ignore it because it's against their narrative. It doesn't fit what they've already boxed in, themselves into. But down here, they have uh, dinosaur footprints and human footprints like overlapping each other in the same rock. Okay, it's like the same. Here's a dinosaur foot. There was a human footprint and the dinosaur footprint. I think went on it anyway. They have it right, and that rock is a sign an age of 64 million years old to 140 million years old. Possible humans didn't live back then, according to their own theory. Uh, but they won't. They won't acknowledge this. They they ignore it. And when they, f- in fact, when uh, Carl Bow, he's the guy that has that. Creation Evans Museum, when they first found this rock, they even assumed it was a carving because back in the day they carved out footprints in the rock and they would sell it to tourists. You know, locals would do that. But nowadays they have a, what they call a uh, spiral cat scan and it scans that the rock. And so if it was just a rock that was carved, that entire rock would have the same density because it's just a rock. But if it was at one time mud and somebody stepped on it, that mud would be compressed everywhere 
where a human it would be consistent with the weight of a human walking in those certain areas. So they do this CAT scan to see if there's compression in the rock because it would have more density in those areas. And it turns out these, these footprints have compression and they're more dense and areas consistent with the way a human walks in the, in the stone. So, you, I mean, you tell me, but the, and I've read negative articles about it. All they say is, is they're like, well, those footprints look too perfect, so they can't be real. You know, like they have no argument against them and they won't come down and look at them because they're so bent on their own view of uh, science that they won't, they won't even look at it objectively, which is just really frustrating. But I don't know, that, that stuff's pretty cool to me too. Like I said, you can go to creationevidence.org and check some of that stuff out. They have a whole museum as it, of it. But as I come here to a close, there's just one last thing I want to look at. That's Psalms 19, 1 through 4. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak. Night after night, they make him known. They speak without a sound or word. Their voice is never heard. Yet their message has gone throughout the earth and their words to all their world. God has made a home in the heavens for the sun. Nature itself testifies of a creator. You know, all of mankind, we cannot duplicate even one single little bitty living organism. We can't do it. We can modify stuff that's already there. We can mess around with stuff, but we cannot create something from nothing. You can look outside and see something as basic as a fence post, and you say, wow, that was man-made. But you look at the tree that it came from, you know, you look at the complexities of the human nervous system, and you say, well, that's random. That was by chance. That is statistically impossible, like even according to like math, you know, it's crazy. You cannot convince me of it. And I know I'm not the first person to say this, but I do not have enough faith to be an atheist. (laughs) Impossible. Anyway, I hope that this lesson has helped you to understand how the Bible is put together and helps you understand how to read it. Uh, I also wanted you to see definitive proofs from Scripture and from the world to show you that the Bible can be trusted. Because the devil's only weapon is deceit. And he always questions the Word of God. He did that in the Garden with Eden. He questioned God's command of which fruit to eat. And that was his last-ditch effort to trip up Jesus during the temptations Jesus faced after he had been fasting for 40 days. Even when Satan tempted to turn, uh, tempted Jesus to turn the stones into bread, that wasn't so much because of the hunger. Because the first thing the devil said was, if you are the Son of God, he questioned who Jesus was. He said, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to be made of bread. He was trying to get Jesus to question who he was and to prove it. Prove it. If you're the Son of God, prove it. That's what that was about. He's always questioned the word. And this is the same tactic he uses today as he convinces Christians all over the world that they are powerless in this life. Jesus didn't just come to bring salvation. He came to bring heaven on earth to restore relationship with the Father and allow us to live a no-limits life through him. Just like our core scripture says, Ephesians 3.20, now all glory to God who is able through his mighty work within us, amen, to accomplish infinitely more than we may ask or think. The devil may be defeated, but he is still a liar, and I want to crush those lies that can sometimes hold us back in reaching our full potential In Christ Jesus, amen. Amen.